thank you for being here this morning. Um, uh, the traffic was a mess. I think we'll probably see people coming in uh, during the traffic time. It, not only was the traffic a mess, but uh, uh, I understand it started raining. And so uh, uh, I'm delighted to be here with you guys, and I thank you for coming. Uh, I, I was reminded because of the weather, there was a seminar, a legal seminar that was being held up in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. And um, uh, as the seminar was winding down, my buddy, who's a lawyer, was scheduled to speak. Well, a blizzard was coming in, and the airport was supposed to shut in. And so everybody left the seminar, except my buddy. And I said, aren't, you know, you're leaving, right? Oh, no, I'd hate to leave. Uh, you know, somebody may stick around. And, and I mean, I've said I'd speak. I'm here. I'm going to speak. And uh, he got up to speak. And there was one lawyer in the entire ballroom. But he sat on the front row. And my buddy uh, walked up to him and said, uh, man, I, I felt like a fool for staying here. I want to say thank you for staying here. staying here. I'll try to make this worth your while. The guy said, I didn't stay for you. He says, I speak after you're done. <laughs> so anyway, y'all braved the weather to be here, and I'm deeply appreciative. Let's get Zachariah off the shelf, and let's give it a read. Uh, next, uh, last weekend, uh, special appreciation to Pastor David uh, uh, for coming and teaching. Uh, next week, uh, uh, Dr. David uh, Capes will be teaching uh, Zechariah, and he'll be looking at the Messianic passages. So we're just doing kind of an overview today. And so let's open up the book. Uh, Zechariah, I put a copyright date of 518 B.C. We're not quite sure when the last uh, vision was, but uh, that's one of the dates. So let's just throw it in there. Let me tell you, Zechariah is an amazing book. Underline amazing twice. I love this book. I love this book for a ton of different reasons. So here's what I want to do. I want us to put it into a historical context. And yes, about every four to five months, three to four maybe, I try to do this with Scripture because I think it helps us to keep in, in mind the entire flow of biblical history and what the continuing narratives. You, you could use the word meta-narrative, what the continuing storyline is that's common in Scripture. And so I want to look at the historical context for Zechariah. Then I want to look at some key passages in the first chapter. And finally, we'll do our points for home and maybe get out a couple of minutes early because uh, 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 some of you who stay for big church will suffer through a double dose of, of me this morning. And so, uh, and, and by the way, I have a really good memory and I am looking out and I'm seeing everybody who's in here and I will be looking for y'all during the next service. And if you are not there, it will register in the gray cells. Okay. I'm just saying that. All right. Historical context. Oh, that's Rachel, our daughter. She's got little Caleb, his first time here. Lee, uh, her husband, and and little Caleb James, and he's adorable. Hi, Caleb. Hi. Um, if you come to service next hour, you'll get to see a video of him eating his first queso. But it didn't make class. It did make church. All right, let's start with the historical context for Zechariah. So here's your video montage. This is your historical view for the beginning. Are you ready? Let's start up here in the upper left-hand corner. God creates amazing people at the start of the Bible. And he creates them so that they can reflect his image. He makes them to do amazing work. And he makes them to walk in intimacy with him. It's so cool, we call it paradise. They are in the highest and best place people could ever be. Amazing creations by God. But at some point... They sinned. 
And that's le- uh, uh, theology ease for rebelling against God. Instead of reflecting his image to the world so that the world could see us and say, oh, that's probably a, a reflection of what God would look like. Instead, they marred his image. You would look at them and say, no, that's not God. God's not rebellious. God's not usurping power. God's not transgressing and doing wrong. So people rebelled against God. They marred his image. They wrecked that pure relationship. And it had serious consequences. I've got a bottle of water here. This is pure refined drinking water. It's not bad. I got a black crayon here. Now, this water is no longer purified. In fact, look at this. Ooh. Hold on. Here, we can do this together. Happiness together. Get it over that white so that you can see it better. Yeah, look, that's not pure water anymore. That's got icky water. Hold on, I've got to get the icky off my hand. Okay, yeah, how's this? Is there any purity in that water? Well, I mean, I didn't put a lot of crayon in it. Just a little bit. God is pure. And God can't take dirty crayons in himself and maintain his purity. He's got to clean the crayon up and make the crayon pure if it's going to be inside him. And so the biblical image is that humanity fell. Oh, thanks. Humanity fell from God. Yeah, I maybe gave it for this and not for me. The biblical image is that humanity fell from God. Now, when you become unpure and you're made to be pure, God's judgment should be immediate. And it should be death. But it wasn't. God instead promised that through Eve he would bring a male redeemer. And it's so specific in the Hebrew. A single male redeemer from the offspring of Eve who's going to be the fix for the impurity. Now that sets up a narrative that follows through in Scripture. And there's a time later where there's this faithful fellow named Abram. And God calls Abram. He'll change his name, spoiler alert, later to Abraham. But God calls Abram out of Ur and gets him to the promised land. And Abram does things like worships, bows before and brings a tithe to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And Abraham uh, uh, is living faithfully before God. And God comes to Abraham and his wife Sarah, good name for a daughter. And God promises to bring his promised redemption for humanity through Abraham. Now, Abraham's got some interesting events in his life, and you read them and you think, what's this event doing in Scripture? This doesn't seem right. One of them that really stands out is Akedah. It's the, the, where God has Abraham about to sacrifice his son. And then God stops him right before it happens. Because God says, you don't need to sacrifice your son. The implication is God will provide the sacrifice. It'll be God's son. The sacrifice of Isaac wouldn't do anything to purify this water. Now, God makes these promises through Abraham, and what happens? Life is going along pretty decent. I mean, they've got the struggles all humans have, and they get close to God or get further from God. But over time, Israel, or the the descendants of Abraham, I should say, his offspring fall into slavery 
for hundreds of years in Egypt. Hundreds of years. They are enslaved in Egypt. And God's going to do something about it. So God calls Moses from a burning bush. And God reveals himself as the Lord God, Yahweh. And God says, Moses, you are going to lead my people out of Egypt. Well, Moses is recalcitrant at first. He's hesitant. He doesn't feel like he's up to the job. God says, I got this job. I'm just using you. This is my job. And God works to conquer the gods of Egypt in a visible way. And the final straw that causes Pharaoh to release the Israelites is the death of the firstborn throughout the country, except where the blood of the sacrifice of the lamb was painted over the homes. And so the people get rescued through the death of the firstborn and the blood of the Passover lamb. We just had Passover. Now God then takes the people and he leads the people out of slavery into the promised land. In the process, he feeds them with manna from heaven. The bread of heaven comes to them and sustains them. They get on Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai, God enters into a special relationship with them. It's, it's written like an ancient Israelite wedding. And God says, look, if you want to enter into a covenant with me, these will be the terms. And if you do these things, and you shine my light, as a nation to the other nations. If you will be uniquely mine and not do the things everybody else is doing, do things that show who I am, then I'll protect you. I'll give you the land. I'll take good care of you. It'll flow with milk and honey. Life's going to be great. You need to, if you want to do it. And the people said, hey, we are in. He said, well, be sure you tell your kids And your grandkids and your great-grandkids, you teach this to the coming generations because they need to know that the the relationship here is one where y'all are going to shine my light to the nations. And in return, I'm going to bless you. But you mess it up. You don't shine my light to the nations. I'm not going to bless you. I'm not going to help you destroy your testimony. Of who I am. People are in. God says here I want to teach you how to. I want you to build a tabernacle. And this is real special. Because this is a meeting place. And it's going to have an atonement cover for sin. And there's so much that's going to be in this tabernacle. That's going to make sense later. When the Holy One comes. And so the people are in. They build it. And the people enter the promised land, becoming the nation of Israel. At first, they don't have a king. God is their king. He sends them judges at times to help them correct and modify and and give them instruction. But over time, they decide, hey, we want a king, and they get King Saul, and King Saul doesn't wind up working out well. He was a head taller than everybody else, but uh, that didn't help. He wasn't even courageous enough to go fight Goliath. But they've got him, and he goes away, and the next king is King David. Wow, a man after God's own heart. Not a perfect fella by far. Lots of mistakes. But his heart was right before God, and he becomes a great king. You can go to Jerusalem today and still stay at the King David Hotel that he started. Okay, well, not technically. I think maybe it's named in his honor. You can look at the Israeli flag and they still have the Star of David on the flag. Great King David. Expands the empire. Doesn't get to build the temple because God says, you can't build it, you got too much blood on your hands. Purity matters to God. But his son Solomon gets to build the temple. 
And Solomon expands the empire even more. It's pretty cool. And that's your montage of basic history until Solomon. But when Solomon dies, his son doesn't handle things well. There's a civil war and Israel splits into two nations. You've got the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is our our word for it. They didn't call it the northern kingdom. They called it Samaria, named after the capital. Or they would call it Israel because they had 10 of the tribes. The southern kingdom wasn't called southern kingdom by them. It was generally called Judah. They had other names for them as well, but those were the general names. Now, the northern kingdom of Samaria and Israel has a lot of wickedness. It's, 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 it's no more following the deal that they cut with God than the man in the moon. They're worshiping idols. They're sacrificing babies. They're, they're, the wickedness is reprehensible. And so God says, okay. I've warned you, I've warned you, I've warned you. The warnings are over. And sure enough, in 722 BC, Assyria conquers and exiles the northern kingdom. They become the lost tribes of Israel because they're lost to history. Some will have gone south into Judah. Some probably stayed around uh, and didn't actually get deported, but most of them got deported. And that was the end of it. Now, the southern kingdom continues to live and to work. Oh, they become a vassal state and pay some extra heavy taxes, but they've still got a measure of independence. But they go wicked as well. Remember, God had said the deal was, if you will shine my light to the nations, be uniquely mine, I will bless you. I'll give you safety, security, the sun will shine, the, the, the harvest will follow, everything will be dandy. But they breached the deal. In Hosea's words, they committed adultery. They married another. They did not stay faithful to God. And so God says, I'm, I'm going to deal with this. And God does. And in 586 B.C., Jerusalem falls to Babylon and Judah is deported to Babylon. I cannot tell you how horrible that was for Israel. I cannot tell you. I don't have words to tell you. But I've got a friend who put it to music. And uh, Joel Chernoff uh, used to sing uh, as part of a group he called Lamb. It is basically Joel Chernoff. And Joel is a Messianic Jew who lives in, in Philadelphia. And great, great guy. And he wrote this song entitled Rivers of Babylon. And I want you to hear it because I want you in the mood that you need to be in as we go through what we're doing here. So, you ready? Here it is. Can we volume up a little bit, please, Linda? Thank you. the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept for Zion by the moping willows in her midst we sadly hung there If I forget Jerusalem, may my right hand its cunning lose. I a way for Jerusalem, 
delicate with Psalm 137. He's a little delicate with it, but you want to know why they're so bitter and so sad. By the waters, instead of rivers, this is the English Standard Version, of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion on the willows. There we hung our harps, our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Look at the bottom here. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be he, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This was not a peaceful deportation. Jerusalem was conquered by a savage army. And as they tried to defend the city, the army would not only conquer and deport, but they would just take the babies and throw them against the riverbed and the rocks. And these people are supposed to be singing happy songs. And so Jerusalem falls. The people are deported to Babylon. And the situation is one that lasts for generations, generation plus. Now, Babylon doesn't stay for long. So this is the Babylonian Empire being ruled from Babylon. They had conquered the Assyrians, or a good bit of it. 
But they had a problem with Persia, Persis, and Media, the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians in 539 conquer Babylon. Persia's modern Iran and uh, all the way over into some of India and the Indus River. But they conquer the world that way. And then in 538 B.C., King Cyrus allows the Jews to go home. A bunch of them at that point just stay in Babylon. But some return home, a good number. And you can read about it in Ezra, and they try to figure out how to rebuild the temple, and they try to figure out how to rebuild the walls of of Jerusalem, and they try to figure out how to put their lives back together. And it's not at all what they remember their parents and grandparents telling them it would be like. And the obvious question for all of them is, okay, well, what gives? God's been promising this stuff since the Garden of Eden. What gives? What is real? Is there really a God? Or is this all just something we're doing? And if there is a God, where is he? And does he remember what he promised he was going to do? Very good, legitimate questions. But that sets up the historical context and allows us to move into a couple of key passages I'd like you to look at with me. The first key passage is the very first verse of Zechariah. Zechariah 1.1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, so that's going to be late October, early November of 520 B.C., The word of Yahweh, the Lord, came to the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah, is the way you would say his name in Hebrew, Zechariah, and the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, we'll keep the Lubbock pronunciation, and I want to just pause there, because I want to talk about Zechariah, Zechariah. Zechariah's name is a composite of two different Hebrew words. The first word is the word zakar. Zakar. Zakar is typically translated remember. But when zakar is used in the Hebrew Bible to refer to God, it's not remember in the sense of, ooh, I forgot. It's remember in the sense of, God takes action because of what he remembers. It's got that action element to the word. Um, There was a good Hebrew scholar and Old Testament scholar named Brevard Childs, uh, who was a professor. Uh, David, was he at Yale? I think he was at Yale, wasn't he? And he had done a monograph on that Hebrew word, zakar. And I wanted to read it. But I couldn't find it anywhere. Now, this was in 1987, 1988. It was before uh, the Internet was invented. And, and so I, I couldn't find it. And I wanted to read it. So I thought, well, I'll ask him. So I called him up. I called up Yale Divinity School. said, is uh, Dr. Childs there? Well, no, he's retired years ago. I said, well, I don't suppose you'd have his home number. Sure do. They gave me his home number. I thought, wow. So I called him up. Said, Dr. Childs. Yes, this is Mark Lanier. You don't know me. I'm a lawyer in Houston, Texas. Dead silence. (laughs) Then he says, what did I do? I said, you wrote a monograph on the Hebrew word zakar. I have a degree in Hebrew. I want to read the monograph and I can't find it anywhere. I don't suppose you got an extra copy I could buy. He says, you don't want that. He said, I wrote that in 1960, which by the way is the year I was born. So I thought, yeah, this is kind of cool. He said, and I was under contract to write it and I was running late. And then SCM, I think was the printing press, found out that it was that, that some German student was writing his dissertation on the Hebrew word zakar. They told me that they wouldn't publish it if I didn't get it to him in the next two months. So I just whipped it out. He said, you don't want that. You want the PhD dissertation. It's a lot better. I said, I, I don't read German. 
He said, oh, well, then you'd like mine. I got an extra copy. I'll send it to you. And he inscribed it to his favorite lawyer in Houston, Texas, and sent it to me so graciously. But he makes the case for zakar being a word that when referencing God isn't talking about remembering something that he had previously forgotten. So like when it says God remembered Noah and caused the waters to recede, it's not like you should be reading that story thinking, oh man, it's a good thing he remembered for a while there. Noah had slipped his mind. No, it's, it's a reference to the fact that God's taking an action. You say, well, then why do we translate it that way? Because we don't have any other way to translate it. So, zakar, yah, zakar means God remembers and will take action. The yah part here at the end is the abbreviation for God. So, Zechariah's very name is God remembers and will take action. Look at this. See the yah at the end, yod, hey? It's the same two letters that start out the name of God. That's just an abbreviation for God. Now, I have had three people in my life who know that I am always losing things because I forget where I put them. I've lost my billfold so many times. One time I lost my billfold. And I, I mean, we searched for days. I searched for days before I confessed to Becky I'd lost it. And then I told her it had been stolen. <laughs> because it seems to me that it had been if, if I had lost it, I would have found it by then. So I was pretty confident it had been stolen. We cancel every credit card. I order a brand new driver's license. It's that bad. Before I discovered it, whoever had stolen my billfold had put it in a pair of shoes that I rarely wear. But sometime later, I was putting my foot in the shoe and there's something in there. So the standard joke with the kids and Becky for the rest of my life has been when I've lost something, oh, you think it was stolen? Um, I've had three people, knowing some of these stories, give me those little Apple uh, air tags so that you can find it. But the people who've given them to me, including one person in this class that I'm confessing right now to, I set it down because I didn't have time to program it. I can't find them. I've lost them. I got no clue. I've, I've lost three of those now. I'm very forgetful, but God is not. God remembers. You know, it seems weird to me, but the past tends to fall out of my mind unless it's something really horrible that I've done and then it plagues me forever. God remembers, and God wants us to deal with the past. God doesn't just... So, look, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Zechariah, God remembers. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. So say to him, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, shuv, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you. You can't go fix things in the past ordinarily. You know, there's no way they're going back fixing what they had messed up, but they can turn to God. You don't ignore the past. You recognize it. You repent. Say, God, I messed up. And you turn to God and he accepts you there. We had a case in, in the federal courthouse in Dallas. Lee worked with me on that case, as did Rachel. And we had a judge who um, was very, well, his dad was a Baptist pastor. And this judge never really strayed from that. And one of the lawyers who worked on our team, not at my law firm, he was uh, from another law firm, had done something that the judge had ordered everybody not to do. And the judge pulled us into his conference room, and the judge reamed him out like I have rarely heard. I mean, he reamed him out, and he said, what do you have to say for yourself? And the lawyer started trying to defend what he did. And the judge said, stop it right there. All I want you to do is say, 
I'm sorry. I was wrong. What can I do to fix it? It won't happen again. That's all I want to hear. And he said, well, okay, but judge, and he started explaining it. And judge said, stop it. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. What can I do to fix it? That's it. You say those things right now. Well, judge, I would, no, no, not well, judge. Say those things right now. The lawyer didn't quite get it. So the judge put him in timeout for how long, Lee? Like a year and a half or something? And he wasn't allowed to come to court for a year and a half. God says, I want you to deal with your past. I mean, honestly, does God need me to say, I'm, I'm sorry? Does God need me to say, I repent? I need to say it. God's going to help me deal with the past when I am faithful to him and his instructions. Great song. Do you know this song by Bob Bennett, Lord of the Past? Okay, do I have time? Yeah, we're going to do this real quick. Listen to these lyrics, okay? I mean, these lyrics, this will blow you away, all right? This is like big time.
I love that. I love the idea that we recognize that God not only can deal with the past where we've gone wrong, but God can deal with the past where people have gone wrong to us. If you think back about Israel, the generation that Zechariah is speaking to is not the generation that had fouled up. They were born into a condition that stunk because of something somebody else did. People walk around with deep wounds from things that were unjustly done to them. But Zechariah, God remembers. And by remembers, I don't mean he just remembers. I mean he takes action. He's Lord of the past as well as Lord of the present. He is there. He is past. He is present. And he is future. Scripture, he says, I'm the God who was and is, and is to come. He says, I'm the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So God's able to heal us from things that we've done as we return to him. We give him our heart. He is faithful to forgive. And the, the whole point of Jesus is that all of us have done that. This is not holy Mark up here saying, hey, some of you people have sinned. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And anybody who thinks that they're not in a position of needing God to forgive them Better not walk out in the thunderstorm because lightning's going to strike them for their arrogance, if nothing else. But we also need God to deal with our past, not just for what we've done, but for what's been done to us. Because otherwise we grow with a bitterness that, that alters who we are and who we can be. Zechariah is not just in the past. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me. I said, come on. I'm the Lord of the past. I'm the healing. If you'll return to me, I'll return to you. I'll heal you for what you've done, but also for what was done to you. That's Lord of the past. How about Lord of the present? A couple of verses later, get a load of this. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, I, every verse I'm teaching winds up being one of my favorite verses. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, Shabbat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. He said, well, why is that one of your favorite passages in the Bible? Because it happened on February 15th, 519 B.C., how do you know? Because February 15th, 519 B.C. was the 24th day of the 11th month and the month of Shabbat during the second year of Darius. And we know that. We can date that. It's the day after Valentine's Day. The day after Valentine's Day, the word of the Lord came to him. He remembered the day. He wrote it down. Because God's not just God of the past. God is God of the present. God can work in your life on April 23rd, 2023. Absolutely can. He's God of the past and he's God of the present. February 15th, 519 BC or today. But he's also God of the future. Look at uh, Zechariah 1, 13 and 17. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Look, you can go out of town and you can stay in a comfort inn. 
You can have a bad day and you can eat comfort food. You can find comfort in shopping. <laughs> Miss Carolyn, yes! That was not permission. That was, uh, that was an illustration, Miss Carolyn. Hank's over there saying, you just cost me, man. He's pulling out his wallet and handing it to his wife. You find comfort in lots of different things. God says, I am going to comfort you. God's going to give gracious comfort. I mean, how's that? So what are the key points for home? The key points for home for me are pretty simple. Um, I need God. I need God to be not just God of the past and the present and the future, but God of my past, God of my present, God of my future. And the key to all of that is this moment. It's the moment of the present. Because as we say to God, Lord, I'm yours. Everything I've got, everything I am, everything I'm not, everything I've done, everything I've failed to do. I just bring it all, I lay it all at your feet, the feet of the cross, for that wonderful redemption that you promised from the very beginning of time so that you can take my dirty water and declare it as pure as can be so I can again be in great relationship with you. And when we do that, the message is not simply one of, oh, gee, now from here on out you're in God's hands. But it's a message where God starts to work through your past too. As we give God the now, it gives God the ability to minister to us from where we've been. Paul speaks about renewing your mind to the Romans. And that metanoia process of, of, of transforming your mind. Scientists today would use this language. Reprogramming the neural connections. Um, I had an expert witness one time I was dealing with who was a neuro, uh, neurologist. And I had to, to get ready for him and try to explain the neurology to the jury. And so what we came up with was this idea of, um, let's see if I can. You can take a bowl. And um, in that bowl, put a scoop of ice cream. This is going to be strawberry ice cream. Okay bowl kind of goes back like that. Now, if you've got a scoop of strawberry ice cream and you take water, hot water, or why hot water? Hot fudge sauce. <laughs> Who's messing with water? Get the hot fudge crayon. And you pour out this hot fudge sauce. So you, you, you I don't know how to do a, a pour out thing. This is a pour out thing. There, it's got a handle on it. Okay, you're pouring out the hot fudge sauce. That hot fudge sauce doesn't just coat evenly. Do you know what it does? It forms little rivulets and channels down that ice cream. And if you pour more hot fudge sauce, do you know what it does? It follows the same rivulets and channels. And the neuro, neurologist was saying that's the way our brains work. We start associating this with that. I mean, there are certain things that will immediately produce a dad joke in me. It's just automatic. If I see it, it happens. If we drive past a cemetery, it doesn't matter who's in the car or if I'm by myself. I immediately say, do you know why they put fences around cemeteries? Why? People are dying to get in. <laughs> just, it comes out. It comes out. If we're driving down the road and we see those round bales of hay... 
I will always say, oh, those have been declared illegal in Texas. Why? Cows can't get a square meal. Um, My brain will trigger on certain things. Now, those may be humorous and light, but the brain triggers on bad stuff too. Smells you'll associate with something, memories that come up. And you've got, and what Paul says is when you give your life to God and you work to learn who He is and to follow Him in obedience and you walk with Him, God will change those channels and rivulets in your brain. And He'll keep the good ones and He'll take the bad ones and He'll rewire your brain and He'll grow you in joy. He'll grow you in peace. He'll grow in you kindness. He'll grow in you graciousness. He'll grow in you gentleness. He'll grow in you self-control. He'll grow and change and transform you into what he wants you to be, which is a better reflection of who he is. So we repent of the past, we trust in the present, and we wait for the future and let him work within us. Got it? Let me bless you, and then I've got to run to a big church. Say a prayer for me, and I have. I've noticed everybody who's in here, if you're not in there, I will call you out. <laughs> um, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that, that you would, for all of us, help us come to you. And in repentance, say, Lord, uh, we need your forgiveness. And then, Father, may we just trust you to give that forgiveness in Jesus. And may we walk with you and rewire our brains and our hearts and our minds so that we can better serve you and shine your light into a dark world that desperately needs you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.